All right. Well, hey, good morning, Grace. It's good to be here with you. If you've got your Bibles today, I'd like to invite you to turn with me to Ezra chapter 8 is where we're going to be in our series on the, uh, the, the rarely studied book of Ezra. Uh, and I'm going to talk about a tale of two buckets. So I've got some buckets with me. If you saw in your update, you saw the title of the sermon. It is uh, The God of Excel Spreadsheets. And if you're like me, you thought, awesome, a message on hell. Um, <laughs> Uh, but maybe for some of you, it's like, oh, no, this is a message on heaven or, or at least purgatory or something. So we'll get to the, the, the Excel spreadsheets in a second, but we'll start with the tale of, of two buckets. And after uh, I graduated from seminary in 2006, Brianna and I got married. And so that was the highlight of the year. And we moved to Grand Rapids, Michigan, where I took my first job as a pastor. And I was the, an assistant pastor at a church plant in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And, and as an assistant pastor, I sort of was a, a jack of all trades and, and master of none. So I was in charge of the music. I was in charge of you know, the setup and the teardown because we met in a, in a school gymnasium. I was in charge of organizing all these teams of volunteers and, and small groups. And I quickly realized that I had all sorts of training in like theology and Bible and preaching. And I was doing basically none of that. <laughs> I was doing stuff that I had no real training in and sort of administrative uh, stuff. And, and it came out sort of over and over that I wasn't particularly good at the things that I was doing. And, and one of the ways that this came out is we decided to have a Sunday. And we've had these sorts of Sundays here where we said, let's get as many people as possible into a small group like a small group Bible study or a life group, and we called it Group Link. And so the idea was we would hold, we'd have lunch, we'd bring in uh, lunch for everybody. And so we were a church plant, we didn't have a lot of money, and so we chose, next slide, Jimmy John's as the lunch provider because it was cheap and it was fast. And so we'll feed everybody, we'll get them all to sign up for a small group, it'll be great. And because I'm not a very good delegator, I just figured, well, like, I'll do it. I'll get the subs and I'll plant, I'll make the signs and I'll do it, you know, all this stuff. And about halfway into the serving line, it was very similar to the story in um, the Gospels where someone came to me and said, um, Rabbi, the people have no bread. <laughs> <laughs> but there was no miracle forthcoming. There was me jumping into my Honda Civic and driving as fast as I could to Jimmy John's to try to get more sandwiches because I had planned poorly. I hadn't estimated properly. I don't have a vast experience in like meal prep or how many, you know, subs people eat. They never covered that in seminary. And so it was just, I was like, this is a disaster. It's an embarrassment. I, I don't feel like I'm really doing what I'm called to do. And it was as if there were like these two buckets for me, these two buckets. And so I've brought two buckets and I'll put one here and one over here. And the first bucket was the stuff that I had training in, the stuff that I felt actually good at. And it involves like theology and teaching and preaching and, and things like that. And I had labeled that bucket the stuff that was really actually spiritual, spiritual stuff had to do with teaching the Bible and teaching people about Jesus. And, and I was like, that's, that's my bucket over there. That's, that's my bucket. I'm actually okay at that. But there's this other bucket over here that I'm going to affectionately dub non-spiritual things, which dealt with how many Subway sandwiches or Jimmy John sandwiches to order for a small group event and, and administrative things 
things that had to do with delegation and planning. I feel like I'm doing all of this non-spiritual stuff, but I'm not good at that stuff. I'm, this, is, this is my bucket over here, and I want to spend more time on that. And you may actually be the opposite of me. You may be like, you know what? I would love to do delegation and administrative work, business things. The idea of like preaching a sermon or something like that sounds horrifying. Like it might be flipped for you. Um, but my passage today in Ezra is actually going to challenge this whole division of life into these two buckets, spiritual and, and non-spiritual. Uh, it, it sort of is going to challenge that. It's going to challenge the way we think of life. And I have to be honest, it reads a bit like an Excel spreadsheet. <laughs> it's the gospel according to the U.S. Census Bureau. I mean, it, it's not a poetic passage. It's, it's, not, it, it's not an enjoyable passage to read. But the idea is that God doesn't just need preachers and musicians God needs administrators, he needs accountants, he needs volunteers, he needs faithful delegators to lead people out of exile and into freedom. And we need to challenge this division of life into spiritual things and, and non-spiritual things. So if you've got your Bible, Ezra chapter 8, I'm going to be working with a rather odd translation. When the younger son came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. Why are you laughing? I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Is that the translation you have? It's a failure of administrative gifts. <laughs> That's the passage a preacher wants to preach on. It's this beautiful, powerful, moving story, right, of a son going into exile coming to his senses, and then coming home. Here's how Ezra tells that exact same story in his version. Ezra chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. These are the family heads and those registered with them who came up with me from Babylon during the reign of King Artaxerxes. Of the descendants of Phinehas, Gershom. Of the descendants of Ithamar, Daniel. Of the descendants of David, Hattush. Right. I'll stop there. You get the point. It goes on. Verse 31. On the twelfth day of the first month, we set out from the Ahava Canal to go to Jerusalem, and the hand of our God was on us, and he protected us from enemies and bandits along the way. And so we arrived in Jerusalem, where we rested three days. Then in verse 35, it says this. Then the exiles who had returned from captivity sacrificed burnt offerings to the God of Israel. Twelve bulls for all Israel, 96 rams, 77 male lambs, and as a sin offering, 12 male goats. All this was a burnt offering to the Lord. This is God's word. 
And I, I start with that bit of weirdness and reading the passage out of Luke and the prodigal son's return, because even though it may not seem like it, these two passages are actually telling the same big story. Ezra and the prodigal son are recounting the same big theme that we see all the way out, all the way throughout the scriptures. And that's because in the Bible, this is the first takeaway, all of history is a story of exile and return. All of history is a story of exile and return. And this plays out in, in your life too. In, in the very beginning of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, Adam and Eve sin. And the, the paradigmatic archetypal punishment or consequence of sin is exile. They have to leave the garden. They have to move east of Eden. It's a story of exile and return. Cain kills his brother Abel, and the punishment is exile. He moves east of Eden. There's a tower, and God knocks it down because of human pride, and the punishment is that people are scattered in, in a form of exile. Jacob cheats his brother Esau, and he has to run off into a kind of exile in a foreign land. The kings fail to listen to the prophets and the punishment is exile in a place called Babylon. And that's where we pick up the story of Ezra, is God is leading these people out of exile. All of history, your story, is a story of exile and, and return. And that's because in the Bible, the result of sin, you could say it this way, is exile. This season of sometimes painful learning of walking through the consequences of sin. And it's not always your sin, right? Some of these Israelites were just born in exile. Some of us were born in exile in a family environment, in a geographic location that was just laden with the consequences of sin. And so it's not always your sin. Sometimes it's my sin. Sometimes it's somebody else's sin. But in the Bible, the result of sin is, is exile. And what we see is that death is really a subspecies of exile. It's like the ultimate exile, to be exiled from the land of the living. And it's an exile that Jesus undergoes on behalf of his people. And, and so you've seen this in, in your life. You've seen this, this season of pain as a consequence of sin, and you learn things in exile that you don't learn elsewhere. Amen? It's not fun to go into exile. It's not fun to realize the consequences of your sin or of somebody else's sin. But all of history is this story of exile and return, and you learn things in exile. You learn the seriousness of sin, that it really matters. It's not this arbitrary breaking of a random rule. You learn the persistence, the, the stubbornness of God's grace, and you learn empathy for those who struggle with sin when you have to spend a season in, in exile, you learn that the father's house that you couldn't wait to get away from actually isn't a bad place to be Amen. when you have to walk through that season of exile. Whether for you it was a DUI, whether it was a divorce that you chose or didn't choose, whether it was flunking the seventh grade, I won't ask you to raise your hand, whether it was any number of things, a season of pain, we could think of as a season of exile that you chose or was sort of forced upon you. And the good news is, 
whether we read from the book of Ezra or the book of Luke in the prodigal son story, whether we read from Ezra or Luke, God is passionate about bringing people out of exile and back to the Father's house. He's passionate about bringing people out of exile and to the Father's house. And so the question I want to ask is, okay, if that's the gospel, right, why don't we feel that as acutely? Why don't we feel that good news as acutely when we read it in Ezra as when we read it in Luke? Because it's the same story. It's God bringing people out of exile and back to the Father's house. It even has some of the same themes, like the sacrifice that takes place at the end when they come back to the Father's house, the temple. Why don't we feel it as, as acutely in, in Ezra? And my, my simple answer is, well, because Ezra's focused on the other bucket. He's focused on the logistics, the delegation, the administration, right? It's, it's the gospel according to travelocity, right? Here's where we're going to go, and here's what, you know, it's all these details and these administrative things. It's, it's the gospel according to bean counters and managers and logistical organizers. It's, it's God and his return from exile put into an Excel spreadsheet. And so that brings me to my second Point that I think it, it, this matters for us. This isn't just sort of random. The great works of God involve not just skillful preaching and moving music, although I love both of those things, but the detailed work of delegation and administration. I'll say it again. The great works of God involve not just skillful preaching and moving music, but the detailed work of delegation and administration, right? And if you're like me, you're like, watch your mouth, right? That's, don't talk like that in church, right? But we're going to read a few verses. I think, I mean, just thank God that I'm not making you read these verses because the names are incredible. It's like reading a foreign phone book, right? And so note in this passage all of the detailed laborious work of delegation and administration that Ezra has to do to get an entire nation, not just one younger brother, but an entire nation out of the pigsty, so to speak, and back to the Father's house. If it's just one guy, you can just sort of come to your senses and stand up. But if you're talking about hundreds or thousands of people, it takes some administrative gifts. And so it says this in verse 15. We'll start there. And I've sort of highlighted some of the active verbs that are used in this passage. She says, I assembled them at the canal. I had to assemble all these people that flows toward Ahava, and we camped there three days. When I checked, he had to go and check, among the people and the priests, I found no Levites there. And so I summoned, he had to summon this guy, Eleazar, Ariel, Shemaiah, El Nathan, Jerob, El Nathan number two, Nathan, not to be confused with El Nathan one or two, <laughs> Zechariah, and Meshulam, who were leaders in Jehoiarib and El Nathan, number three, who were men of learning. And I ordered them to go to Ido, the leader of Casaphia. And I told them what to say to Ido and his fellow Levites and the temple servants in Casaphia, so that they together might bring attendance to us for the house of God. Because, and then this is important, the gracious hand of our God was on us. They brought us Sherebiah, 
a capable man. Right? How many of you ever thanked God for bringing you a capable person? An employee, a friend, an associate, right? The gracious hand of our God was on us, and these people, they brought us Sherebiah, a capable man from the descendants of Mali, son of Levi, the son of Israel, and Sherebiah's sons and brothers, right? We read that passage, and we're like, you know, in our devotional time, like, I think I'm going to switch to Luke, <laughs> right? I like that version better. Because you would need an Excel spreadsheet just to keep all the Nathans and Elnathans straight, I mean, it's just a, a hodgepodge of, of, of names. It's, it's detailed administration. And recently, a couple weeks ago, um, I spent a week at a senior high youth camp in northern Iowa, right, like you do. And so I had this long drive to northern Iowa. And when I have long drives, I often listen to long podcasts. And so I listened for the second time to one of my favorite podcasts. It's a 24 six-hour podcast on World War I. And I've got a picture of this. It's called Blueprint for Armageddon by a guy named Dan Carlin, Hardcore History. And it's so long and so dark. I don't know why I listened to it a second time, but it was just fascinating to me. I feel like I'm turning into Rod in a way. I don't know. Um, so <laughs> I listened to it again. And one of the things he brought up is you think of war, and war kind of was like this prior to the modern era. It was really about getting all your, your courage sort of generated up and just sort of charging forth Braveheart-like. And you need a general who's going to give you a good Braveheart speech, and that's how you win battles. But one of the things that changed in World War I in a fully mechanized war was that war was won by bean counters. War was won by people who could do the math and think about the logistical intricacies of mobilizing literally millions of people and keeping them in the field alive for years. It took delegation and administration. And some nations were super good at it. The Germans had been training for it for years. They had this whole detailed plan. Other nations weren't so good. And they were trying the Braveheart model and it didn't work. It didn't work very well. For an army to be successful, you don't just need passion. You need the detailed work of delegation and administration. You say, well, okay, great. Well, I'm not in an army. You, you actually are, right? In the army of the Lord, this sort of peaceful force for good in the world. And that's true not just on the, the battlefield, but it's true in Christian history. I bought a slide of two guys first guy is the name uh, John Wesley. You may have heard of him. The greatest sort of evangelist uh, movement launcher in the 18th century in church history. And another guy was a contemporary of Wesley. He's a guy by the name of George Whitfield. And Whitfield was the greatest preacher in the 18th century. And Wesley and Whitfield were kind of frenemies. I don't know if they can, they, they were friends, they respected each other, but they had some serious differences on theology. They ended up being really supportive of one another. And so it was a cool story of how God kind of worked through both of their ministries. But Whitfield was by far the better preacher. He was by far the better communicator, and thousands of people would come to hear Wesley, or sorry, Whitfield preach. And Wesley was, he was, he was, he was good, right? He was a good preacher, but he, he wasn't anywhere near as effective 
as Whitfield. But one of the fascinating things is that Wesley's movement, which became later known as Methodism, very quickly grew into the largest Protestant denomination in the United States. It literally just swept the nation. And as always in church history, there are ebbs and flows and rises and falls. And Whit Whitfield's movement after his death didn't have the same sort of reach as Wesley's. And the people who study them say it was because Wesley wasn't just a preacher. He delegated all of these roles in ministry to all of these underlings who then fanned out and started these, these, these home groups and these circuit writing things. And, these, and it began to sort of spread, not just by powerful preaching, but by the detailed work of delegation and administration. It's the other bucket being poured out into the world. The bucket that people like me sometimes would look at and be like, I don't like that. That doesn't seem very spiritual. But it's the difference between a movement that sort of peters out and a movement that catches fire. To lead people out of exile, you don't just need preaching and music. You need the detailed work of mobilizing Nathan and El Nathan. Delegation. So here's the takeaway. You have something to offer. You have something to offer the movement of God in Bartlesville, the people of God at Grace Community Church. And it does not mean that you have to get up here and talk for 30 minutes in front of your peers, right? For some of you are like, thank God, right? <laughs> there are all of these spiritual gifts that God wants to mobilize, and many of them sort of get poo-pooed. They sort of get downgraded or forgotten about because they belong in that other bucket. And you have something to offer the people of God. People like me, we have something to learn. You have something to offer. I have something to learn, right? Even this morning, I was like, you know what would be great for a visual aid? A Jimmy John sub. Guess who forgot to get that yesterday? Fitting, isn't it, right? <laughs> sort of like the Holy Spirit was almost involved in my incompetence. So it's... <laughs> You have something to offer, even if you're not a preacher, teacher. I have something to learn. We need both buckets together for the kingdom to go out in force in Bartlesville. Amen? At this very same camp, I was getting, I was the speaker. You bring the speaker in. I got a separate apartment with no, like, middle schoolers living in it. And, and there were other counselors who were with the students, and they were talking about all of the work that had to go into this camp. And there was a lady named Stephanie, and she talked about how she loved Excel spreadsheets. She just, they just made her happy inside to have all of the campers organized and everybody's special, you know, whose medicine needed to go to. And I just thought, that sounds horrible, right? I'm so glad that you're doing that. But we need both. We need both. And that's because here's the big idea. The third takeaway. The line between the spiritual and the non-spiritual exists only in your head. The line between the spiritual and the non-spiritual exists only in your head. Verse 31, in this long litany of sort of details and mind-numbing names, on the twelfth day of the first month, we set out from the Ahava Canal to go to Jerusalem, and the hand of our God was on us. 
And he protected us from enemies and bandits along the way. So we arrived in Jerusalem where we rested three days. It's as if God was working to bring together all of this delegation stuff, this sort of stuff that I would think of as like, oh man, that's not very much fun. And then the spiritual side of things to put them together in one bucket. And at the end of this long, laborious list of names, the answer is, who did it? God did it. God brought us safely to the altar and we sacrifice to him. There's this, this line between the spiritual and the non-spiritual is something that we make up, whereas God wants to pour all of our gifts into the same bucket so that we can be together as his people. It's sort of like this scene in the Bible is often used, it's the marriage or the marriage supper of the Lamb. And I remember I mentioned getting married already today. There is a very different role to be a part of the wedding party than to be the wedding planner. But, but both of them are important if you don't want to lose your mind. If you want to have that, that marriage and then the supper that follows it be successful and enjoyable. The line between the spiritual and the non-spiritual exists only in our heads. And so I brought a picture today. Um, it's a picture of some folks at this camp I was just at. And um, it's my friend Bryant on, on the right, my friend Jarrell in the middle. And uh, the, one of the nights of camp, I had planned this whole thing where like, here's the night I'm going to ask people to accept Jesus. I've got it all planned out. Da, 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 da. And they said, well, no, actually, Josh, tonight's holy night. And we've organized this whole other thing, this like walk through the woods and people telling their stories. And there's this seed. There's a, they're giving them seed. I'm like, okay, seed, I guess. And there's music. And so we're going to do this. And I was like, okay, I'll, I'll be flexible. And so preach my message. We go out in the woods. I'm waiting for the students. And we, they, they're being led kind of to this place where there's three crosses and there's music. And, and students are praying and, and, and God is working. And um, a student came up to me in a kind of short white kid with long hair, and he says, this is exact quote, would you pray for my brother Bigfoot? <laughs> it's like, would you pray, or something like, would you pray for Bigfoot? I, th I think, is this a trick question? I, I, like, is he sentient? Is he, I, I don't know, like, I don't know Bigfoot, you know, but I could tell he was serious. He wasn't a joke. He was actually kind of emotional. Like, yeah, I said, but never thought I'd say this, but yes, I would, I would pray for Bigfoot. And and so he led me over to Jarrell, this guy in the middle. Jarrell was his foster brother, and apparently everybody calls him Bigfoot because he's, he's big, fits, you know, if the, uh, never mind. So, uh, and Jarrell, I remember Jarrell because all week Jarrell looked like he wanted to punch me, and I tend to remember those people. <laughs> right. And in fact, like, he clearly did not want to be there. Like, he clearly was, like, not, he didn't want to be there. And even that night when they led these group of kids out of the woods and I was supposed to give them all their seed, Jarrell was, like, shaking, and he seemed to me with anger, right? So I was, like, literally, like, this could go bad. Like, I don't know this guy. I, this, is, this is, we're in a dark place. Um, and he clearly was upset. 
And yet his foster brother leads me over to him as he's on his knees, like crying. And he says, I want to accept Jesus. I've never, I've never believed in Jesus my whole life. To his, his brother's exact quote, and I don't know if this is an exaggeration, I don't know, he said, Bigfoot literally has been worshiping Satan. That's what he told me. And I don't know if he just means he was a wild guy or if there was some sort of altar in his home. I don't know what he meant by that. But Bigfoot accepted Jesus. And it wasn't that I led him in the prayer. I was just a bystander who handed him some seed. His counselor, Bryant, who's one of my students at Okwu, who had spent the entire week in his cabin dealing with all of the, the tensions and the intricacies of living with high school students in these cabins and being up at all hours of the night. Brian was the one that prayed for him to receive Christ. And Stephanie, the queen of Excel spreadsheets, was the one that made sure that he had everything he needed for the week. And Tony, the district youth president who invited me and organized this whole, it was as if both buckets were, were poured together. And the result was this person coming to know Jesus. The things that we label spiritual and non-spiritual, the Excel spreadsheets and the sermons and the music, God wants to use all those things to lead people out of exile. What's your gift? Is it delegation? Is it administration? Is it relationships? Are you an extrovert? What does God want you to pour into the bucket, so to speak, that is going to be poured out into this community? Where can you serve? Where can you lead? Where can you help? Who can you mentor? The line exists only in our head. And Ezra shows us that every bit as much as the prodigal son. Let's pray.